verse 1. Romans 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let me pray. Lord, we come before you and your word and know, Lord, that as we examine your word, it is such a precious thing to us that you, the almighty God of the universe, would humble yourself um, and speak to us in this way. And Lord, that you would then give us the charge of examining it and knowing it and understanding it. And Lord, because we are sinful, you know that we will pervert it. And Lord, so you were gracious to give us your spirit that he might illumine our minds so that we understand it. And Lord, because we are sinful, you know our hearts will not rejoice in it. And so you are gracious to give us your spirit to soften our hearts so that we might receive it with joy. Lord, I pray this morning as we examine your word and as it examines us, that we would rejoice in it. That we would be thankful for your gospel. That we would know it is our only hope our only plea and that we would boast no more as a result in Jesus name. Amen. Well, this year I had the privilege of coaching my son's soccer team in AYSO and his soccer team was six and seven year old, right? And so there were 
you know, Kevin got to help me out, in fact, as my assistant coach. And, and one of the philosophies of AYSO is that you don't, you're not going after winning, right? You're trying to teach the kids to be good sports and to have fun. And, and I would agree with the AYSO philosophy that the most important thing is, is being a good sport because, you know, it's no more virtuous to win than it is to lose. However, it is a lot more fun to win than it is to lose. And so, uh, you know, of course you want to win because it's more fun. And so that's what we focused on and, um, is just teaching them the virtue of having a good time. And uh, they recognize that that equals winning. And so we had a lot of fun. And as a result, I was a happy coach. But during the season... Um, I was trying to get to know some of the parents a little bit and talk with them and interact with them here and there. And at the last, uh, well, the second to last game, we had a team party and we, we all met at a pizza place and we were hanging out and, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of the moms and she, um, she was a Sikh. You guys know what a Sikh is? Okay. Um, they're from the Punjab area of India and they kind of have a variation of Hinduism. And so I was talking to her and uh, asking questions about being a Sikh and just kind of what, what she believes. And I listened to her describe a religion. And she said something um, that so precisely summed up the teaching of probably every world religion outside of true biblical Christianity um, that I was just kind of, uh, it was a moment for me where I went, that's it. She, she gets what the religions of the world are about. Here's what she said. She said, I think all religions are really the same. We just need to be good people who obey what God tells us and we'll be okay. There's a short lesson in comparative world religions for you. Just be good people who obeys whatever our God tells us and we'll be okay. In other words, she's saying that in religion, any religion or every religion, we can be justified by good conduct. Right? We can be justified by being religious or by law-keeping. She then followed up with this question, which kind of put me on the spot. She said, don't you think that's true? Isn't that what you believe? I told her that I agreed with her that it's true that every world religion teaches that. But then I explained the gospel to her. And I explained the gospel to her somewhat like this. I said... Well, here's the thing. I, I understand that you could get that impression not only in every other world religion, but you could even get that impression in Christianity because of how so many Christians think about their faith. Um, I said, but let me explain to you what Christianity really teaches. Well, what it really teaches is that God created us and he created us to reflect his image to enjoy him to glorify him and that we fell into sin and that as sinners we can do nothing to repair that relationship we can do nothing to reconcile with him because he is holy and we are sinful and there is this chasm that we cannot bridge and then i told her i said but God loves us and he didn't want to leave us in that damned condition. 
And so God purposed to send his son, Jesus, whom you think is a prophet. He sent him to live perfectly the life that we all failed to. To keep God's law perfectly because we fail to. I said then, um, he sent him to the cross. And you know why he went to the cross? No. To pay the penalty that was due to us for our sin. And then he rose from the dead, securing all that he had just done. And I told her, I said, so for Christians, biblical Christians, the gospel is different than every other world religion because it doesn't say, do this, do that, do this, and you'll be okay with God. It says, Jesus paid it all. He did everything for you. And all you do is believe. That's it. Believe. Recognize he's your only hope. That's it. And she looked at me and said, that just seems too easy. What would be the point of being good? You see, our fundamental belief is that being religious will make us okay with God. That's the fundamental belief in every human heart, including mine and yours, even after we're believers. We think being religious, especially if we're sincere and authentic, will justify us. Ideas everywhere. It exists in the Christian church as well as outside of the Christian church. But religion does not justify us. Indeed, religion cannot justify us. Now, I'm not saying religion is useless, okay? It is good, helpful, and necessary for you to participate in religious activities like biblical disciplines, corporate worship, keeping the law, caring for the poor, daily prayer and Bible reading, giving to the church, baptism, communion, etc. It's good, helpful, and necessary to do all those things. However, none of those things justify you. None of those things make you right with God. None of those things can you hold on to or claim or hold out before him as somehow making a claim about your goodness and right to be before him. None of them. When those religious behaviors become the basis of our claim to be justified, they are practices we need to repent of. You hear that? Our good works often are what we need to repent of. Even more than our sins. John Gerstner made this statement. If you don't know who he is, he was a mentor to R.C. Sproul. Um, if you don't know who he is, then sorry. <laughs> he used to say that it's not our sin as much as it is as it is our damnable good works that keep us from God. In other words, none of us hold out our sin before God and say, this is why you should let us into the kingdom. We hold out our good works and it's easy generally comparatively for us to repent of our sins easier than it is to repent of our good works isn't it 
of our self-righteousness, that's difficult to get over. And that's what often keeps us from God. We must recognize that when we try to be religious to please God, we're trying to prop ourselves up ultimately as our own saviors, aren't we? And that's really where the pride comes in. In other words, if Jesus isn't our justification, but in some way our good works or our religion are, then we are saying we are our own self-saviors. Now, we might acknowledge theologically, Jesus is my savior, but functionally, on a day-to-day basis, we think we are, don't we? Notice in Romans 1.16, Paul doesn't say, for I'm not ashamed of my religious behavior, does he? He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. Why? Because it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Did you hear that? It's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is our righteousness. Our righteousness isn't found in good works or religious ceremony or law keeping, all of which Paul deals with in this passage. Our righteousness is found in the gospel. That's what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. It's not that we are people of the right religious practices. It's that we are people of the gospel. We believe with Paul that trying to justify ourselves through religion is futile because God's wrath is really already against our sin, isn't it? And by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We believe with Paul that the righteousness necessary for our justification is not a righteousness we can earn or that is intrinsic to us, but is a righteousness that's foreign to us. It's outside of us. It's God's righteousness credited to our account. It's a righteousness that's freely and graciously given to us. It's a righteousness that was earned for us by Christ. Earned by his perfect life and substitutionary death. And it's a righteousness that's received only by faith. And because we believe this gospel, the gospel of Jesus as our savior, Jesus as our justification, and Jesus as our righteousness, and not the message of the religious, that we are our own self-saviors, that our good works are our justification, our own well-lived lives are our righteousness. Because we believe the gospel and not religion, we are humbled and not prideful. We are convinced of the universal need of all men for this. We have an assurance that is a certain, I want you to hear this, especially those of you who struggle with assurance. We have an assurance that is as certain as Christ's resurrection and not as uncertain as our ability to keep us in the faith. That's what we've been studying in Romans. That's a summary of where we've come to and a little bit of where we're going. As we walk through Romans, we came to this great turning point in Romans 3, um, 21 through 26, where Paul explains the gospel in some depth. If you haven't heard those sermons, you want to hear those sermons, we have them on CD. I think they're online by now. Um, I think I preached six sermons through that passage because I want to get a hold of the gospel in this congregation. We cannot miss that or we miss the whole thing. It's all an exercise in futility. 
Now we're turning, so we've done that. Now we're turning in Romans 4 to Paul's demonstration of the gospel in Scripture. In other words, Paul's laid out what is the gospel. First he laid out why do we need it. And then he laid out what is it. And now he's laying out, I'm going to prove this to you in Scripture. I'm going to show you that this gospel is in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you that this gospel, this good news, is not new news. It is good news. It is new in its historical fulfillment in Christ, but it is not new in its promise. It's been the gospel that's been promised since Adam and Eve fell in the garden in Genesis 3.15, right? You guys know that verse? What does God say to the serpent? The seed of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel, right? That's the first announcement of the gospel. And that goes throughout. And today we're going to look at Abraham's example specifically. Paul's reminded us that the gospel is our hope and not religion. And the gospel is the good news of our justification. And he's demonstrating it in Romans 4. That's what he's doing. He's demonstrating that it's in Scripture. In fact, today we're going to look at the fact that Paul gives us three biblical evidences. Three biblical evidences for justification by faith alone. He gives three biblical evidences for it, and he's going to give us some implications that spring forth from it. Three implications that really spring forth from it. So that's what I want to look at this morning. What are the evidences in Scripture that this gospel has always been? What's been proclaimed? And what are the implications of it? That's what I want to look at. So first, what's the first biblical evidence? Look with me at Romans 4, 1 through 8. And Jason already covered this, and so I don't want to pound on this part of the text too much i I encourage you to get a sermon on romans 4 1 through 8 it was an excellent excellent um sermon and he really goes through this text well i'm just going to use it because i see three of them here and so i'm going to refer back to this one look at verse one what then shall we say was gained by abraham our forefather according to the flesh for if abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before god for what does the scripture say Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, why does Paul go into the discussion of Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of the Jewish faith, and he knows what the response is going to be, because the Jews believe that Abraham was an exemplar of good works. He was an exemplar of keeping the law, even though the law was not yet given, but the law written on the heart. They believe that about Abraham. And so Paul says, if all this is true, that what I've just said about the gospel, if all this is true, that nobody has anything to boast about, what about Abraham? He was a good guy. He's the father of the faith. Can't find a better Jew than this man. What about him? And he says, you know what? He has nothing to boast about either. Because the scripture clearly tells us in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified the same way you are. That's what Paul's telling the Roman church. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul wants to make very clear in this section in 1 through 8 that justification does not and has never come through good works. Never. The being declared righteous by God, being forgiven for your sins, has never come through good works. And it still does not. So he turns to the father of the Jewish faith to to demonstrate this. 
What, what does Abraham fa- have faith in? There's no? The promises of God, didn't he? He had faith in the promises of God. God had promised that Abraham and his offspring, the Messiah, would come. God had promised that through Abraham's seed would be the Messiah and that they would inherit the world. And that those who follow, those who are of the faith of Abraham, those who are the children of Abraham, would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. God had promised all this to a man who um, had no children. And Abraham believed God. Now, ultimately, the difference between Abraham's faith and ours is Abraham believed in the promise that's to come. The promised Messiah that's to come. We believe in the fulfillment of the Messiah that has come. That's it. We're both justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus even knows that Abraham is looking forward. Jesus says it. You know that in John chapter 8? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham, he rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. He was justified by faith in Christ who was to come. We are justified by faith in the Christ who has come and who will return. Paul is making it clear that justification was not in Abraham's case and is not in our case derived from good works. Instead, he says in verse five, that justification comes through what? Look at verse five. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Paul backs up his interpretation of Genesis 15, 6 by appealing to Psalm 32 or the writing of David. He wants to say, look, my interpretation of Abraham is not off. Just look at Psalm 32 and he quotes it. He says this, just as David also speaks of the blessing, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If we understand Paul's argument, then we understand that justification is a joy-inducing free gift of God's grace received by faith alone and not a pride-inducing payment for our works. That's the contrast he's making in in 1 through 8. Justification is a joy-inducing, the blessing. You know what the word blessing? Makarios in Greek, it means happy. He's blessed or he's happy. Happy is who? Are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Does that not give you joy? Absolutely it does. And it gives you joy because you know you contributed nothing to it. And guess what? It can't be taken from you because you can't do something to remove it. It gives you joy. And it doesn't well up any pride in you. In fact, it does just the opposite, doesn't it? It removes your pride. Because it is not a payment for anything you've done. It's a free gift of God's grace. It's joy-inducing because we realize that God freely and graciously justifies the ungodly. That's me. And it kills pride because we realize it has nothing to do 
with us. But the Jews might have objected. I, and I, in fact, Paul expects them to object. But what about circumcision? Abraham was circumcised. We're circumcised. Being circumcised means we're members of the covenant. Are you saying his circumcision counted for nothing? And that our circumcision counts for nothing? You know, this is our tendency also, isn't it? We hear that justification has nothing to do with our good works. And we still want to appeal to something, don't we? Can't be that easy. Can't be that free. I went to church my whole life. I gave. I was raised in a Christian home. I was baptized. I played music up front every Sunday. I preached. Don't I get something for any of that? I was good. I didn't cheat on my spouse and I didn't even like her very much, but I stayed with her. I've heard people appeal to that. Do you know that? Actual conversations. That owes me something, doesn't it? And that leads to Paul's second biblical evidence that justification is by faith alone. He, he says this, Abraham was justified by faith prior to being circumcised. Look at verse 9. And notice how this section begins, verse 9 and 10. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Who are the circumcised? The Jews, right? Or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Paul's just been saying that we're given the blessing of justification through faith alone. So he's just been saying we're given it through faith alone. And he's been using Abraham as his example and teaching from David as his evidence of his interpretation of Genesis 15, 6. And this may be a great argument for those who have Abraham as their father in the faith. But what about the rest of us? What about those of us who are not physically descended from Abraham? It's really the question that comes up here. The Jews could respond, Paul, this blessing of justification is only to those who are in the covenant. It's a blessing only to the children of Abraham. It's a blessing only for the circumcised. Well, let me explain to you what Paul is saying here. First of all, we need to understand that when God called out Abraham, Abraham was a Gentile, wasn't he? He became a Jew after he was called out by God and the first Jew. Look with me at Genesis chapter 12 and keep your hand in Romans 4 and Genesis 12 because um, we'll be in Genesis again. But Paul's laying out the history here. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. This is where God originally calls out Abraham. He says this, and he was originally called Abram, by the way. You know what Abram means? The name Abram in Hebrew means exalted father. His name was changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Okay, and that is attached to the promise he received, that he'd be the father of many nations. But look at Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Now time starts to pass. So Abraham goes, takes this promise of God. He believes it. He goes. And time starts to pass. He gets older. He's wondering, how in the world are all the families of the earth going to be blessed through me? How are you going to make a great nation out of me? I have no children. My wife is barren. We're getting old. God, and the biology of this isn't working out for us. And you go forward to Genesis chapter 15. Because God comes to him again and reconfirms the promise, yet still does not give him a child. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Hear that? The Lord promised him, Abram, I know you're childless. I know you're getting up there in years. But your very own son's going to be your heir. And you're going to have so many children that there'll be greater than the number of or as great as the number of the stars in the sky. His, his point is, you're going to just, the earth is going to be covered with your children. The nations of the earth will be blessed. This has got to be hard to get a hold of for a guy who has no children yet, doesn't it? And we'll talk about the nature of Abraham's faith in 18 through 25 of chapter 4, but we're not going to today. But this has got to be a hard thing to get a hold of. But Abraham believes him. He believes the promise that God can do the impossible. He believes it. That God can make Sarah's dead womb alive. He believes it. That God can call into being things that, as, things that are as things that were not. You hear that? They are things that were not. He calls them into being as things that are. That's a reference to his ability to do what? Create in Sarah's womb the ability to have a child and come forward. The parallel to that is the ability to raise the dead. And we know that time passes if you go through, um, go to chapter 16, the end of chapter 16 of Genesis. Because time will pass here. And Hagar, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. So Abram goes and is disobedient. Interestingly enough, by the way, Abram's disobedience follows his justification. Not to give you a little hope, right? God's already declared him justified, and then he goes out and is immediately disobedient. I can't wait around anymore. I'm going to have relations with this woman so I can get a child somehow. And he's 86 at this time. Now look at down at chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, how many years just passed between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17? 
13 years, 13 years passed. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of many nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I'm going to stop there and turn back to Romans 4. How many years passed after God declared Abraham justified? Or credited righteousness to Abraham's account, forgave him for his sin, saved him. How many years passed between that and the time at which Abraham was circumcised? Minimum, 13. Probably closer, to, as scholars say, to 29 years. That's a lot of time in between this ceremony that the Jews want to appeal to for their salvation and the actual justification of Abraham, isn't it? The Lord made Abraham a promise, a promise that Abraham believed. And we're told that Abraham was justified through faith in the promise. He was not justified by later circumcision. In other words, Abraham's justification had nothing, nothing to do with his circumcision. Nothing. His circumcision came way after his justification. Even after a lot of disobedience on his part. So what was the point of circumcision? Look at Paul's uh, statement in Romans 4.11. If the circumcision, the ceremony didn't save him, but faith. But then, then what's the point of it? Verse 11 of Romans 4. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he, righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, circumcision was a sign you know what a sign is? You guys know what a sign is. You see them all the time, right? Sign. Stop sign. 100 meters. Well, we don't use meters, do we? Okay. 100 feet ahead. Stop sign, right? And so you come by this. Now, is that sign that tells you there's a stop sign coming? Is that sign the actual thing? Or is it telling you about the thing? It's telling you about the thing, right? It isn't itself the thing. Signs signify something. They tell you or they're signing to you something's coming. If I have a, uh, you know, I'm driving down the 99 and I'm coming to Bakersfield and it says Bakersfield 20 miles, that's a sign. That sign is not Bakersfield, right? It may look a little nicer than Bakersfield, but it isn't Bakersfield. It's just a big green highway sign, right? 
that tells me Bakersfield, 20 miles. It signifies the thing. Okay. Circumcision is a sign. It's a sign that signified for the Jews an inward reality. God justified them by faith. He circumcised their heart. He cleansed them. And the sign signified that. That's all. And it was a seal, Paul says. What's a seal? A seal, like I have a seal on my passport. You guys have passports? Your passport, you have a picture and they put the seal of the United States on it, right? And what's the seal for? You know what it tells other nations? He belongs to the United States of America. This is our seal that he belongs to us. You know what a seal is? Circumcision as a seal is that you belong to the people of God. It's a sign. It's not in and of itself useful. Or a seal that is not in and of itself useful. They point to something. Which is what's saving. Which is faith. Really, circumcision functions similar to baptism then, doesn't it? What is baptism? A sign and seal of faith, isn't it? Baptism is a public... You guys ready for this? A public attestation of what God has done inwardly to you, right? It's an outward way of demonstrating what has happened inwardly. Baptism doesn't save you or justify you or do anything for you. The water isn't magic, right? It just demonstrates to everyone out there what has actually already occurred. It's a sign you're in Christ, that you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone before your baptism. It's what it is. So why was Abraham justified by faith before he was given the sign of circumcision? Why, why did God do it this way? Why does God make very clear, Abraham, you're justified by faith, and then later give him the sign? Years later, why does he do it that way? Look what Paul says in verse 11b of chapter 4. 11b meaning the second sentence there, right? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's the Gentiles. So that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. The purpose was to make him the father of the Gentiles because he was uncircumcised when he came to faith and when it was credited to him as righteousness. And, verse 12, to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, the purpose of all of this was to make Abraham the spiritual father of both Jews and Gentiles, of everyone. That's what he's saying. Of everyone. There are huge implications to this. Huge in the minds of the Jews at that time. A huge implication. Justification is universally available as a free gift of God's grace received by faith alone. Do you hear that? Universally. It's not the deserved inheritance of a specific ethnic or religious group. 
Now, we might be tempted to wonder, how could the Jews get so hung up on religious ceremonies? I mean, why get so hung up on that stuff? Uh, I don't want you guys to forget that we often appeal to religious ceremonies. You know that? We do it um, uh, in, in the quote-unquote Christian church, or those who profess to be part of the Christian church, we do it. I'll give you some examples. For example, um, in Roman Catholicism, Baptism is the first plank of justification. It's a direct statement out of their catechism. Baptism is the first plank of justification. Usually, take, usually baptize as an infant, and that is the first plank of it. You're then justified. The moment you commit a mortal sin, you are no longer justified, and you must go through penance, to, which is the second plank of justification, to get your justification back. Is that not a ceremony that's being tied to salvation? It is, isn't it? Or justification? Uh, We have it on the opposite extreme, the Church of Christ. On the opposite extreme, the Church of Christ says baptism is what saves you. You go into the water, you get baptized. You can believe all you want before that, but until you go into the water, you're not saved. Or let me get a little closer to home. Uh, let me kind of hit you guys where you're probably at. We, we have our own little ceremonies too. Well, one of them we call the prayer of salvation. Have you prayed the prayer? Right? The other one is the altar call. Have you ever gone forward to the altar to receive your blessing from Jesus? Right? We do this too. You know what we ask people? We don't ask him, are you believing in Jesus presently? Do you have faith in Christ? You know what we ask him? Did you pray the prayer? What is the prayer magic? Am I going to stand before God and plead? I prayed the prayer. I walked down the aisle. That preacher called me forward and I walked down it. Like there's some kind of grace. That's like the aisle of grace, right? And as you walk down, you just accumulate more and more until you're justified. What is that? Those things are our actions. Those things aren't what justify us. Do you know that? Praying, when you've come to faith to thank God and to repent of your sins, is perfectly appropriate. But don't think that that prayer is what saves you or justifies you. What saves you or justifies you is the grace of God that you've received through faith. Prayer is simply an acting out of the faith that you already had. So what I would challenge you to say is usually when someone gets up to come down the aisle or maybe often the people who are really saved when they come down and answer the altar call are people who were saved in their seats already. Right. They heard the gospel and they believed. Now they just came forward as an action that was demonstrating to people. It's almost like our current day contemporary replacement for baptism. See, it used to be that you believed and you were baptized. Now you believe and you walk down an aisle, come forward in altar calls. But it's, that's what it is. I'm not downing the altar call so you know. What I'm saying is we cannot confuse that ceremony with justification by faith alone. And we do it. I hear people constantly appeal to that ceremony. I went down on an altar call. I prayed the prayer. Do you presently believe in Jesus Christ right now? Are you believing in Christ for your salvation? No, but I did 12 years ago when I answered that call. Hmm. 
interesting. Have you walked with him at all? Do you care about him? Are you living with him? No. Look, <coughs> that was an action that that person's trying to say is their justification, isn't it? Rather than faith. We have to be careful about that. We, we can pick on other groups for doing it. We do it. So, oh, the Roman Catholics are so bad. They have infant baptism. So what? They have penance. Oh, you know, they go to a priest. And who cares? We have our junk too, don't we? We can pick on them all day long, but we repeat it with our own little ways of doing it that seem a little more disguised. They're probably actually a little bit more insidious because they're not so in your face. They're actually a little more deceptive, aren't they? The fact is that justification is through faith alone and not through religious ceremony of any kind, period. If we forget this, we're not calling people to the gospel. We're calling them to unsaving religion. Paul's third biblical evidence is that the promise is fulfilled through the law or excuse me, is not fulfilled through the law, but through the promise or the righteousness that comes through faith. Look at verse 13. The promise is fulfilled not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes through faith. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Hear that? And if I was going to reinterpret that or retranslate that for you so it's a little bit more clear, it was not fulfilled when it says did not come through the law. It was not fulfilled through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. That's a little bit more dynamic. That gives you a little bit more understanding. That's how the promise was fulfilled. It's fulfilled through the righteousness that comes by faith, not through the law. And really this attack that Paul gives, um, you know, against those who would claim law keeping as their justification or works or or ceremony, this attack is really two-pronged here. It's historical and it's theological. Here's the historical part of it. When did the law come? When did the law come? 430 years after Abraham was justified. Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians 3.17. I'll read this to you because Paul makes this same assertion later. This is the historical argument. Galatians 3.17 this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise, but, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. <laughs> what Paul's saying is the law doesn't come for 430 years. So you can't say that that is what got Abraham justified. Justification happened 430 years before the law was even given. That's the historical argument. Second prong is the theological argument. If law keeping is how we inherit the promise, if law keeping is how we're justified, then faith is empty and the promise is void. Look at verse 14. For if it is the adherence of the law, those who are centered in it, the legalists, okay? If it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. What's he saying here? He's given three problems with this theologically. The idea that law keeping justifies you. First problem, if that's true, then God's promises are void. And if God's promises are void, 
we have real problems, don't we? Because God is not a God who either A, tells the truth, or B, is powerful enough to confirm his own truth. That would be a major problem, and Paul is not going to allow for that, so he immediately comes after that. Two? I said A and then two, huh? There's a good flow. Second? The biblical declaration that Abraham was justified by faith can't be false. Look what he says. Not only is the promise void, but faith is null or empty. It's useless. And if that's true, then Genesis 15, 6 is a lie. And so not only would God's promises not be willing to be trusted, but the word would not be willing to be trusted. Those would both be huge problems, wouldn't they? Third, the law only brings wrath. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. What he's saying is that the law shows us our sin. In fact, because we're sinful in Romans 7, he'll tell us not only does the law show us our sin, it excites sin in us. When God says, don't do it, we want to do it then. You guys know that, right? It's not because the law is a problem. It's because we're a problem. You guys know this. When you were kids, your parents said, don't do it. You want to do it. Right? And you see it in your own kids. That's how sinful we are. The law excites sin in us, and the law shows us our sin. That's all the law does. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Is simply pointing out that the law brings wrath because it points to our guilt. But if there was no law, then we would not have sin and thus not need saving. So the law doesn't justify us. It just points to our need for justification. This was the misunderstanding the Jews had. They could be accurately described or referred to as law keepers or adherents to the law because their lives were centered around it and they hoped in it. They thought the law was their justification. They were legalists. And we're not so different from them. Especially me. We often obey thinking it will be it will bring our justification, don't we? We base our standing before God on our own law-keeping. And, but, but we're really good at deceiving ourselves in this. Because, because we don't say this. We don't say, well, you know, I think I'm justified by law. What we say is, I know I'm justified by faith alone. And what we mean by that is this. I know faith gets me in the door of the church, but I got to keep myself there. We live as if our own law-keeping is our justification. Now, now, how do I know this? I know this because of the fruit of it in my life and in the lives of other Christians I know. And you're not different than me. We may have different personalities, etc., but we're all deep down the same sinful people, aren't we? That's how we can share in so many of the same descriptions that the Bible gives and all go, yeah, I felt like the preacher was preaching to me. Was he hanging out this week with me? No, he was hanging out this week with himself and he's just as evil as you. Right. I so often try to base my justification on the sincerity of my faith. Rather than. On the righteousness of Christ. Or on the amount of guilt I feel for my sin. Rather than the forgiveness that is mine in Christ. Or on the amount of excitement I feel for God rather than God's rejoicing over me. Or the self-discipline I have in reading my Bible. Or the passion I feel for prayer. 
or the ability I have to keep my eyes from looking lustfully at a woman, or the depth of desire I have for suffering for the gospel, and on and on it goes. I don't look at Jesus and say, often enough, and say, he's my blessed assurance. He's my hope. He's my sure and steadfast anchor. He's my justification. He's my righteousness. As a result, I don't often rest on God's grace, on God's power to keep me, and on God's certain promises. I don't. Instead, I fear letting what I've done in the secret, in secret, come into the light. You know why I fear that? Because I fear rejection. And why do I fear rejection? Because I don't really believe. This is the problem. Often don't really believe that in spite of all that junk in my heart and everything I did in secret, all that matters is that God loves me and is gracious to me. That's what matters. God loves me and is gracious to me and he sees all that. So you know what I do? I want to hide it from all of you. And you know why I want to hide it from all of you? Because I don't want to admit to it myself. I don't want it to be seen. I fear rejection because I don't trust God's grace. I fear people knowing the truth. And so I don't live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. Often, I think, here's some of my struggles. What do they think of my preaching? Or my personality? Or the manner in which I handled myself in a given situation? What do they think of my children? Or the way I interact with my wife? What would they think if they really knew what was in my heart? What would, what would they think if they found out that sometimes up here in this pulpit, I'm faking it? Just trying to look good. What if they knew that some days I don't want to read my Bible and pray at all? What if they knew that I've lied to some of them? What if they knew that? Why do I do all this? Because my assurance of my salvation is so often caught up in my ability to put on a good face and to be a good law keeper. See, what happens when you understand the gospel and stop relying on religion is that you realize I can expose what I've done in the darkness into the light because of the grace of God. I can. I can face the truth and I can tell it to you. Because no matter how grim it is, no matter how grim the truth is, God loves me and sent his son to die for me and extended to me a mercy and grace that is so awesome that it covers all of my sin. Even the sinner that I am. I don't have to be afraid because I don't have to rely on my own goodness or others' evaluation of me. I can rely solely on the grace of God in Christ because I'm justified by, I'm not justified by my, good, by my good works or by my religious observation or by law keeping. I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone.
Look what he says here. He sums it up in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 4. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, meaning those who are the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, meaning the Gentiles, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you believed, or he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Did you guys hear that? I want it to wash over your soul. Just let it wash over your soul. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace so that or and be guaranteed. Do you hear that? You want assurance of your salvation? There it is. Guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the adherents of the law of the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. See, we must remember that justification is a secure and irrevocable gift, free gift of God's grace received by faith alone. It is not an uncertain promise to those who are under the law. We have to remember that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the free gift of your grace and justification for the way that you've continually blessed us, just your kindness to us. We deserve none of it, yet you extend it to us. And Lord, I pray that we would rest in your grace that's received by faith alone. And Lord, that we would not try to achieve it through some kind of works or ceremony or law keeping but Lord we would know that is a free gift from you and Lord that because you've made the promise through your grace and given it to us by faith it is a guaranteed gift it is one we can rest in and Lord I thank you that the result of that is that because you are our justification Jesus our, repu- our own reputations don't have to be. And that we can let into the light the things that are done in darkness because we trust you. Um, Lord, let us be people who are concerned with the reputation of Christ and who allow him to take care of our reputations. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion and I'm going to read the passage and to tell you that during the next three songs, you are free to come forward if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, however, this is